Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we're going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 film scores in American cinema history. We're up to number 21 on the countdown. Which means that on this episode, we're going to be discussing Miklos Roja's score to the 1959 super spectacular Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur was produced for MGM by Sam Zimbalist from a script by Carl Tunberg, among others, and it was directed by William Wyler. So, uh, so Andy, what, uh, what's Ben-Hur all about? Ben-Hur is a huge Hollywood spectacular cinemascope epic that takes place in biblical times. You've got your Romans, you've got your Judeans, you've got your chariot race, and you've got cameo appearances by Jesus Christ himself. Yeah, the movie is subtitled A Tale of the Christ, but it's really like a tale around the Christ. It stars Charlton Heston as Judah Ben-Hur, and then a whole bunch of other people whose names you don't really need to know. Uh, The person who's in this movie is Charlton Heston. (laughs) Um, Right. Judah Ben-Hur starts out as a wealthy, successful, happy Judean, but then because he resists the Roman rule, he is wrongfully accused of a crime, sent away to become a galley slave, and then he has to go on this odyssey to return to his home and his loved ones. And uh, Ben-Hur's life sort of winds up intersecting with that of Jesus at some key moments. Think that's good enough? Good enough. Hey Andy, did you uh, did you watch Jeopardy last night? I did not, John. So one of the contestants, when he was being interviewed during the contestant interview part, the thing that Alex chose to talk about was that he was a collector, a collector of what of film scores. And Alex asked him, "What is your favorite film score?" And he said, "Miklos Roja's score to Ben Hur was his favorite." Hmm. And I thought, wow, we're just about to record a podcast talking about that very score. Hmm. It was this guy's favorite. Yeah. My impression is that he is not alone, that that Jeopardy contestant is one of many people for whom this is their favorite film score. Is it your favorite film score, Andy? It's not because I just met it. Okay. It's a big commitment. This You don't want to make this kind of a commitment uh, just yet, right? A commitment to getting to know it over a long period? Or even just to, like, experiencing it. It's a big commitment. This movie is a big commitment. It is. It's a work of scale. Andy, how long is this movie? I believe it's three and a half hours. Is it more than that? It is more than three and a half hours. It's like three hours and 40 minutes. This is a very, very long movie. Yeah, I feel like I'm still watching it. (laughs) And the score didn't necessarily have to be as long. Some movies have scores for only 10% of their running time. But this movie... This movie has a score for more than 10% of its running time. It has... I think three hours of music, right? I was going to say somewhere between two and a half and three hours. I read somewhere that this is considered the longest film score ever written. In terms of total minutes of music produced, I am not at all surprised. So this movie won Best Picture. This movie won a whole boatload of Oscars. And, you know, I kind of feel like it won the award for Best Picture, not necessarily because it was the best picture, but just because it was the most picture. I think that was the sale, and they made that sale. And even today, when many things about this movie are immediately dated, are not the way it would be done now, the the whole project wouldn't be done now, 
notwithstanding <laughs> the fact that they did, in fact, make another Ben Hur in 2016. <laughs> yeah, that gives the lie to that sentence right away. Yes, though. but I think it was widely understood to be bewildering misjudgment of the current market. This movie would not be made the way it was. No. This is a product of its time. Absolutely. It is dated. Nonetheless, it still manages to impress by how much of it and how big of it and how impressive and expensive it is. Did yeah. it not impress you, John? No, it did impress me. It had a cast of thousands. It had a set of thousands. It had a <laughs> score of thousands. It Indeed. packed those thousands in there. Billions and billions. It's a product designed to blow you away with quantity. Yeah, it's the most picture. Let's try to articulate why this feels so foreign to current audiences. The whole time I was watching, I felt like, yeah, this is a one of those. This is totally, completely just one of those. It's totally convincing me at how one of these it is. In the year of our Lord, Judea, for nearly a century, had lain under the mastery of Rome. In the seventh year of the reign of Augustus Caesar... Biblical epics. Biblical epics. Hey, those are great stories that uh, everybody knows something about. And we can shoot them in California because we've got deserts and whatnot here. Although this was mostly filmed in Italy, I believe. That's true, yes. But this trope of, you know, it's called the swords and sandals epic style, you know, where guys are battling in ancient Roman times, it was just de rigueur. It's like comic book movies today, I feel like. Yeah, I think that that is an apt comparison. Just like with comic book movies today, where there's a mercenary marketing thinking behind it about how they can make money in China, I think that there was kind of a marketing strategy behind the biblical epics, which is that these function as religious movies and mm -hmm. action movies and sure. love stories, and you know, you're kind of hitting every perceived type of interest and so the studio can afford to pile all of its resources into this thing because it's going to hit everyone right and i think another big element was that this was i think tied to the advent of television movie productions were wary of losing out on their audience to people just staying home and watching television so there was a sort of an arms race escalation to pack more and more production value and theatrical gimmicks into their productions. So the degree to which they were putting as much production value on the screen was very, very sincere. And they were selling, look at the cast of thousands you get to see, look at all of the money that we spent, look at the widescreen technicolor picture, listen to the stereophonic sound that you can't do on your tiny television screen. So the motivation to have this utterly sincere epic quality was very real. Part of the upshot of this attitude toward movie making is that they really want to put everything uh, but, or is it including everything but the kitchen sink? The kitchen sink goes in? Is the kitchen sink in there? Everything, yeah, I think everything and the kitchen sink. They wanted to put everything but and then and. <laughs> I think I, it's I everything think... but the kitchen sink. Definitely the kitchen sink goes in last, whether or not you include it is, I think, to taste. These movies are packed with everything but the kitchen sink. And what that means is you have a movie that has uh, the crucifixion and drag racing and torture and a love story. By drag racing, you mean chariot racing. I mean chariot racing, but like it's a, you know, it's like demolition derby sports scene in right. a Life of Christ movie. And that is a mixed set of ingredients. There are a wide variety of 
elements that don't necessarily have immediate aesthetic relationships to each other, and they are made to cohere by being put in the same package. And I feel like that is one of the big things that music does in these productions, is says you're going to a special place, and everything you see here is equally heightened and astounding. Yeah, and it starts out with the music right off the bat. There is an overture. Uh, the first frame of picture has the word overture in big type. And then you listen to this overture for, what is it, four minutes before... Any, Six minutes. Before the frame even moves. But, you know, John, there was an overture in How the West Was Won, and I misrepresented what that is. I have read more about that since, and Ah. these overtures were actually played while the house lights were still up and there was no image on screen. There's an image on screen now in the DVD modern-day versions of it so that you understand that you're not missing anything. But the actual original use of the overture in Entract was for special, as they called them, roadshow pictures where you'd get like assigned seating and a program and they'd sort of treat it like a theatrical experience, there would be an overture and an entract played while you were taking your seats as a way of upping the theatrical nature of the event. So the sitting silently for six minutes staring at the word overture is actually not a historically accurate experience. All right, well, I sat silently for six minutes staring (laughs) at the word overture and... uh... Yeah, I mean, it, it immediately introduced me to the idea of this is a grandiose thing with grandiose music telling a grandiose story, and that the music is, you know, part of this grandiose effort. In prepping for this episode, I took a quick flip through Miklos Roja's memoirs, and this is a quote that I thought I would read, even though it doesn't directly relate to Ben-Hur, to something he mentioned in passing. He was working on a film for John Huston. He says... I wrote the prelude and asked Houston to come and hear it. He didn't like it. He said it was doing what innumerable preludes had done already, telling the audience that what they were going to see was super colossal, tremendous, fantastic, the greatest picture of all time. And then came just a picture. So then John Houston requests some different type of opening that's a little bit more dramatically pointed and uh, specific and doesn't make those kinds of grandiose claims. Well, this is Ben Hurt. This is not just a picture. So the opening absolutely says that what's coming is going to be super colossal, tremendous, fantastic, the greatest picture of all time. That is pretty explicitly the claim being made by this picture all along. And enough money has been spent that they kind of live up to it. Yeah, it's the most picture. Super colossal is, is a good word here from Roja. An audience listening at home, if you want to picture Miklos Roja in your head just to imagine this personality that we're talking about, you can picture Robert Vaughn, the star of television's The Man from Uncle. He looks exactly like Miklos Rocha. <laughs> he looks somewhat like Miklos Rocha. Come on, look at, look at him. I, I'll, I'll let you have it. So my experience of this score was from the first second, yes, this is signaling to me that we're about to see a gargantuan achievement in film production 
and everything about this is prestige and numero uno and amazing and spectacular. Yeah. And the music successfully sustained that from beginning to end. And as far as my conscious experience of the movie while watching it the first time, that was pretty much what the music was doing for me, and the rest was subconscious. Were you aware of the music in other ways, John? I agree with you. I think I had a similar experience. The word I want to focus on that you used is the word sustain. I think the music absolutely sustains this sense of grandiosity. It kind of slathered it over the movie with a very broad brush, with a very consistently broad brush. And I don't necessarily mean to use the word slather in a derogatory sense, but I'm right, you know? Isn't it slathered? The whole movie, everything in this movie is slathered. I felt like the music was sort of sitting on top of everything that was happening in a continuous layer, in a thick layer, in a layer that didn't commingle very much with the layers beneath it. It was a broad swath that was just sort of a layer of cotton batting, and it made it soft, it made it palatable, accessible, it made it lush, it made it plush and luxurious, and it just kind of sat over the whole vista of it. How about that? I agree with most of that image, except for this sense of something sitting on top of what's there. And my experience of it was that what was there was always foremost for me and was not muted by any cotton. It was, in I fact... I didn't mean to invoke a muting sense of cotton. I just... Right, I, but your image is that there's a movie and then the music is placed on top of that. And I feel like this music was wonderfully successful at the, you, you could say, limited task, but in this case, a huge limited task of seeming to be the natural world out of which this movie was emerging. I felt like okay. the music got in underneath and behind my conscious awareness and I was following the dialogue I was following the interactions of the characters I was following the peculiar turns of this peculiar story and the music was there justifying the tone of the whole thing it made it seem correct that Charlton Heston acts that way this is where your search has brought you Baldazar he gave me water and the heart to live. What has he done to merit this? There is no way that Charlton Heston would have won Best Actor for this if that music had not been there, to me, behind, underneath, before making his performance seem necessary. The music was there mm -hmm. creating a, a heightened ground from which the absurdities of this movie now seemed sort of proportional. Yeah, justifying is very important. I was particularly aware of the music having a sort of justifying effect on this sweeping epic storytelling in one of the early scenes where the Magi are laying gifts at the feet of the infant Christ in the manger. We see a wide shot of the Star of Bethlehem with a magic beam of light perched above them. Just this, you know, very sort of biblical scene that was sort of played out in pantomime. There's actually no dialogue during this, and the music is just churning away telling you, yeah, this really is important.
this is the meat. This is what else could you want to see but the birth of our Lord? And here it is. Here it is. The music is saying. And uh, yeah, I believed it. I, I, the music was telling me this really is the thing that is the most important thing, and I really believed it. But when you talk about them saying that it's important, it's in a monumental sense important. It's not important in the sense that, you know, we've used the word stakes a bunch of times in this podcast. I don't think that it was saying there are stakes, watch out, something is going to happen that you need to track. It was just saying this is big, it is full of dignity, and it's pageantry. A lot of the moments when the music is most prominent in this movie are literally music to accompany pageantry. There are several different parades, you Mm -hmm. know, Roman pomp, and you hear this style of, I think he called it pseudo-archaic, pseudo-Roman music that Roja more or less invented, or at least he invented this association of these kinds of open fifths. Oh, did he? You think that he invented this? It seems like a very known technique, these, as you say, martial open fifth brass fanfarish sounding textures you like the one that he calls in the soundtrack of marcia romana mm-hmm. you know the roman march of the legions of centurions trudging along There's another one for uh, the entry of the new governor of Judea. And then there's another one for a victory march when the Roman general returns to Rome. So, I mean, a lot of these tropes, a lot of these musical tropes are so associated with these sorts of images that they get parodied everywhere you look. During the Marcio Romana, I thought of the music for the Roman character in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum by Sondheim. It sounds like a parody of that to me. Stand aside, everyone. I take large steps. I feel like this kind of stuff turns up all over the place. Well, I'm attributing it to Roja maybe because I'm giving too much credence to things that Roja advocates and Roja himself said about his work. But, you know, when he talks about what he wrote for Ben-Hur, he says that he basically called on this pseudo-Roman style he had developed for the earlier film Quo Vadis, 1951. Roja wrote a score for a similar ancient Roman setting and did a fair amount of musicological research, or at least a fair amount for a typical film composer. He seems to have looked at what few fragments there were of Greek and Roman melodies. There were very, very few survived archeologically and not too much is known about how to correctly interpret them, but he wanted to try and root it in this kind of inspiration. But then, yes, he sort of concocted what to our ears are archaic sounds because they were medieval sounds, these open fifths and fourths and then put together this aggressive brass use of them. Here's the first idea we hear in the movie, the theme that I would think of as the It's Biblical Times, folks, theme. (laughs) 
just so perfect. Right. You start grinning immediately, at least I did, that this is your entrance to this world. I actually thought, you know, the famous poster for Ben-Hur, it doesn't occur in the film itself, but in the poster for Ben-Hur, the title styling is hewn out of enormous mountainous rocks. Right. And the music was sort of, to me, like that image of, you know, here's the title of the movie. What is it made out of? It's made out of rock, you know, miles deep rock. And the music was creating that kind of sense of bulk behind this thing. Yeah. And, you know, let's give it credit. I think it succeeded at that. It succeeded at making it feel like miles deep rock. Yeah. I guess I just wanted to return to the point that that's different from engaging the audience in the ins and outs of the action. I don't think that this music particularly concerns itself with that too much. I agree, and that's sort of what I was trying to articulate in this layer of cotton batting. I was saying that it's a layer that doesn't really get down into the nooks and crannies. It doesn't follow the contour of the story beats very much. It kind of, by being so imposing, sort of limits the fine motor stuff that it's able to do by reaching for such massive palettes. There are definitely specific spots where watching the movie I thought, there's no music here, and gosh, what could the music even do here? What could this language accomplish in this smaller actual story beat moment? One of the places where I definitely noted the absence of music is the sequence in which Charlton Heston's character has been wrongfully accused of trying to kill the new governor of Judea. It was just an accident. He's been arrested and thrown in jail. So there's this revelation the jailers come into his cell and tell him that he's going to be sent to be a slave in a Roman ship. Um, where? Tyrus. And it's this inconceivable punishment for basically for nothing. I've had no trial. I'm to die in the galleys without even a trial? There's no truth in the charge. Do you hear me? Not a word of truth. Wait, my mother, my sister. What happened to them? Where are they? Tie his hands. It's essentially the point that launches the whole story. At least tell me if they're safe. I can tell you nothing. I mean, it's a story of Judah Ben-Hur being sent away from his home by the cruelty of his former friend and then having to suffer all of these horrors and work his way back toward revenge. And this is the moment when the wrong is done to him. It's a pivotal moment in the movie, and the music is not there playing that pivot. He stages this daring escape. He knocks out the guards that are following him, and he kind of sneaks away. And, and this whole sequence, yeah, there's no music, and... While I was watching, I thought, wow, he really is staying out of the way of the actual beat-to-beat action of these individual people. And it felt very empty to me. But on research, Andy, it turns out that what? It turns out that score was written for those scenes. And so it was not Roja's immediate decision not to score them. It was some kind of strategic choice made later in the process. And in fact, the music has been released on the soundtrack, and you can hear what the scene would have sounded like with the music. And I think it works pretty well in terms of beat-to-beat making this scene exciting. Here come the jailers. Come. Where? Tyrus. Tyrus? I've had no trial. I'm to die in the galleys without even a trial? 
There's no truth in the charge. Do you hear me? Not a word of truth. Wait, my mother, my sister. What happened to them? Where are they? Tie his hands. At least tell me if they're safe. I can tell you nothing. And now he's trying to escape. Ah. One hits him on the head. And now he's sort of knocked out and they're bracing his arms and... Bringing him down to a dungeon. Get along. Keep moving. And now suddenly he's heroically attempting to escape. He's kicking them down and, and running for his life. So in the movie, all of this plays without that musical oomph behind it, which I, for one, watching it, didn't feel that this sequence seemed mysteriously right. empty, but I did think that we'd sort of gone into a different tone, that this horrible thing that was happening to him was strangely unheightened. Part of that horribleness was that it was no longer part of a grand epic the movie kind of stopped claiming that anything wonderful was happening. And I wonder if that was in some ways what they were going for. Why do you think they took that music out, John? I'm honestly not sure because I thought that it played pretty well too, but I guess the guess I have to make is that, was it William Wyler, the director, who made the decision that the music belongs to the world of monumentality? And just the one guy trying to do this one thing is even too small to be commented upon. And I'm not sure if that was the correct decision, because as I said, it made me feel like the music was apart from the action of the movie that I was watching. Like it was a separate layer. Let's change the metaphor here. Let's mix my metaphors. It was a layer of oil on top of the water. You know, they, they weren't really mixing. Hmm. Well, I feel that they were mixing. When it was working, it was like seeing in 3D, like the music was the other eyepiece, and I, it gave it this kind of uh, popped because of the music. Stereoscopic yeah, it became stereoscopic. In addition to being music. stereophonic, it was stereoscopic. And, and cinemascopic. It gave a dimensionality to the action rather than, like you keep saying, sort of sitting on top of it. I felt like it was getting inside it and puffing it out. It was like stuffing, you know, to make everything bulge. Yeah, I don't think I disagree about stuffing it up. I don't mean to apply it to everything. I do think it interacted with some of, with a lot of the picture. But I did get this general impression that it was too blunt of an instrument to get into all of the crevices. All right, so at this point, us having talked about the movie with this attitude of it being just a blunt instrument for a while, people like that Jeopardy contestant, people for whom this is their favorite score, I think will be protesting, but it's so much more than that. It's a sophisticated score, it, it does so many different things, and this is something I came to understand while listening to it on the soundtrack with a conscious ear for what the composer's technique was, and I became aware of this, yes, fairly intricate system of at least eight themes that recur corresponding to specific elements of the story that I honestly had not been particularly consciously aware of while watching the movie. In last episode, when we were talking about the themes in On the Waterfront, you made a point of saying that you wanted to be careful to not put too much weight on these specific associations. 
because you said that the viewer, as the viewer is watching, is not making right. a conscious analysis. They all sort of contribute to an overall feeling about what the viewer is seeing. Well, in On the Waterfront, I feel like I was very aware of the specific thematic elements, although there were fewer of them. In this movie, as I was watching, that was actually ringing in my ears because I was thinking to myself, yeah, I'm not capable of doing an analysis of the thematic interplay because I was dimly aware that there was such thing, but it kind of all blended together for me while I was just watching the movie. So here's some themes that this score is pretty much built out of. I would say first and foremost, except I really was unaware of this theme until after I listened to it. Here's Ben-Hur's theme, the main title theme. That's Ben-Hur's theme? You didn't even know that, did you? I did not. No, I did not. I would never have made the association that that theme is for the character Judah Ben-Hur. I mean, I was familiar with it when it would play in the movie, but it just sort of seemed to me like part of the general uh, ancient Roman time texture. I mean, I'm not sure I could have hummed the theme until I went back later and thought about the soundtrack. Even though I like it, I think it's a good theme. Part of the reason is it doesn't have an establishing scene other than the main title. It's never really nailed hard to make that association conscious. But I think another reason, what I think limits its effect in the movie, is that it plays over a single chord. It's just a figuration over a static harmony. That's the first new chord in the whole thing. It drops down there. So the entire signifying part of the theme is essentially just melodic movement. Yeah, the fact that it's not moving, the harmony isn't giving it a sense of productivity as it moves through the melody. It just reads, I think, a little generic fanfare-ish to me. And there are a lot of fanfares that are just fanfares qua fanfares, actual literal fanfare trumpets being played on screen. To me, it just sort of blended into the texture in which we're in ancient Rome and there could be a fanfare at any moment. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the problem, I think, with Roge's motifs and themes is that he's very happy to invent passing melodic ideas that just occur in the course of one scene and are just sort of played with to fill out the texture. And he's spinning out melodies, not particularly distinctive melodies, but little tunes all the time. And this creates a kind of environment in which the signifying ones and the not particularly signifying ones all mix together. Mm -hmm. In fact, the place I'm going with this is that if you have nine themes, you in some ways you know, don't have any themes because it's more information than I think the subconscious is interested in sorting. Especially if those nine themes are sort of all playing around similar scalar ideas. Right. So uh, continuing my catalog here, that was the Ben-Hur theme. Here's the theme for what you might call Judea. It's the theme you hear sort of setting the scene in the biblical Middle East at the beginning and then on other occasions when we are returning to that area from elsewhere. (laughs) 
Yeah, that tracks to me. That sounded sort of establishy to me. And especially that da 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 He goes to these Sephardic-sounding scales a lot. And that seems clearly an association he's coming for. Oh, certainly in the game of come up with the theme for this, Miklos, he hits them all on the head. He is a complete pro. That's the quote-unquote Judea theme. Here's the love theme. Guess what? It's the same turn, some of the same intervals. Mm -hmm. And in the overture, he goes directly from one to the other, and it creates this effect of like, yeah, there's kind of a lot of music that kind of sounds like this. Yeah, it's all part of the same stew. And in fact, the overture, though the theory behind it, I think, is you introduce the audience, you get them comfortable with these themes so that they'll recognize them. For me, it almost had the opposite effect of making the associations weaker. It just introduces all of this as epic sound, and then there's a lot of epic sound playing during the movie, and the moments of developing associations have been, I think, diminished. Yeah, to me, it all felt part of the same texture of epic sound, but also ancient Roman times sound and Hollywood Middle Eastern sound. It just was all fabric woven from these ideas. It all kind of blended from one to the next for me. The Jesus Christ music. Every time Jesus is mentioned, appears on screen, his face never appears, but his feet do several times. And the back of his head. Anyway, every time Jesus is mentioned, sometimes in ways that you might not have immediately understood they were talking about Jesus, there is this signal music. Why did he do that? I don't know. Once before, but that helped me. I didn't know why then. They are talking about Jesus. This is actually based on a different scale. It's got a, a Lydian thing in it. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. The raised fourth degree of that scale is very often used to connote magic or wonder. And that is not the same scale at all as the kind of Sephardic scale that I feel like everything else is woven out of. I don't know about everything else. I mean, a lot of else. Do you think that if this score had been written in the same, shall we say, mode, but without a thematic structure, it would have worked just as well? Or do you think that the subliminal effect of consistency, that when you're seeing a certain relationship or a certain character or a certain setting, you're always hearing the same music, do you think that that imparts dramatic value even when you're not really aware of it at all? Yeah, I do think that it has to have a subliminal effect. There were definitely a few spots where I was aware of the thematic playing. Like, for example, there's a theme that is associated with the friendship between Ben-Hur and his old Roman friend, Misala. Who winds up becoming his enemy upon whom he has to seek his vengeance through the whole movie. So their friendship has this music that plays when they first are reunited and it's a very warm scene of reaffirming their bond with each other.
then that theme plays a lot during the movie and there was a few specific moments after their relationship has soured where that melodic fragment plays over a different harmonic treatment or over low and ominous sounding strings. I was aware of that saying, well, here is this friendship being reflected through this dark glass of strife between the two of them. I had the same experience that that was the theme I was closest to being conscious of while watching the movie. And I think it's because it has the most harmonic movement. In fact, it sort of has maximum harmonic movement in that every note is given a full major chord that move in parallel. Right. Which is an interesting choice as far as picking a theme that sounds like love, picking a theme that sounds like Jesus. This is, does not really sound like friendship. It yeah, sounds like a I complex agree. relationship, which is indeed what it turns out to be. And it also, it definitely sounds part of this ancient Hollywood Middle East world. You know, those parallel chords, again, are very evocative of the time period, the setting. Don't you think? Only through the lens of the Roja style of scoring. I mean, there's no musicological reason why they should be evocative of that period. No, but I think it it's just part of this constellation of stuff that is selling that setting. Right. So when we talk about the value of this score, we're going to have to talk about the fact that this just works. We all agree that it works. How much to attribute that to Miklos Roja? How much to attribute to this particular score? Because that certainly is some kind of musical achievement to build this style in which you would say that a bunch of parallel major chords, which is really like a 20th century technique. You wouldn't have heard it in music of any earlier era to say, oh yeah, but that sounds like the ancient world. You know, someone has built that for us. And you're saying maybe it's Roja. I think it may well be Roja. Yeah, well then you're right. That is a real accomplishment. So then the friendship is turned suddenly into enmity. And this is sort of the enmity theme or the masala theme or the rivalry theme. Here's the interesting thing about this theme. One of the things that is most often excerpted from the score is the Parade of the Charioteers, which is this music you hear right before the famous chariot race when all of the chariots with their horse teams slowly walk around the entire circuit in parallel. So you'll notice that the tune of this is in fact a cheery major triumphant version of the supposed enmity theme. That represent the fact that this chariot race is the culmination of the rivalry between Ben-Hur and Masala? It would seem so. Because they are the two main rivals in the race. And then indeed the B section of the march is Ben-Hur's theme. And how did they get the line of horses to stay perfectly in a radial line as they are going around the circular end of the track. 
so that the horses on the inside are barely moving or not even moving at all. And then the ones on the outside have to go much faster to preserve this line. I don't know the answer to that, John, but when you saw that, didn't you think, I am getting my money's worth? Oh, yeah. There's just many more horses than I have ever kept in such a straight line. Yeah, it's beyond my abilities, certainly. But anyway, you know, that kind of a transformation... That's kind of a cool thing that uh, completely went over my head watching the movie. Absolutely. John, did you notice that? Nope, that was totally over my head while I was watching. And that might seem like, oh, well, you guys just weren't paying enough attention. If you were one of these people for whom this is their favorite score, of course you would have noticed that. But I question that. And part of the reason I question that is because the music editor... There are places where the music is misused because the themes obviously were not paramount in deciding what to do with the music. During the crucifixion, while we see Jesus Christ being nailed to the cross at the end of the movie... Spoiler alert. Yeah, we hear Masala's theme. Why do we hear this? Because it's grim music. Who cares what the motif is? The editor clearly didn't care. I'm saying overall, this heavily thematic approach to scoring, I think probably had greater value as an organizing technique for the composer's task than it did for the audience. Yeah. What do you think of that? That's a good point. Since you mentioned the composer's task, can I just take a brief aside just to lavish attention and praise upon what a gargantuan undertaking it is to score any picture, really, but especially this one where he wrote two and a half to three hours of music to picture. It's a mind-boggling scope of sheer work, and it took many hundreds, if not thousands, of man-hours, not only by Roger himself, obviously he was at the head of it, but the studio has an enormous music department of music editors, copyists, librarians, orchestrators, and they all have parts to play, and it's this immense ecosystem of assembly line production work. The composer spots the film with the director. The composer, now, you know, he takes stopwatch timings of the points that he wants to hit in the score. Nowadays, it's easy for me. I take the video that I'm supposed to score, and I load it into my sequencer, which is the program in which I record the music, and the timeline of the music is automatically matched up with the timeline of the video. No such luck for Roja. He has to time things, and then if he wants to figure out how fast the music has to go in order to fill the time that he needs to fill, there are tables full of tempo values, where if the music has so many beats per minute, that means that there has to be a beat every so many frames. And you do all this nitty-gritty arithmetic to find out the frame rate that you need and the beats per minute that you need, and all of this gets passed through this chain of command, from the composer to the orchestrator, orchestrator to the copyist, to the librarians who distributed to the orchestra. And then another thing that was much harder to do in these days was the actual synchronizing it live while it was being performed and recorded. So nowadays, everybody in the orchestra is wearing headphones, or at least is wearing one earphone in one of their ears. And in that earphone is a 
click track. It's basically just a metronome already synced up to the picture. Now they did have click tracks in Roja's day, but it was definitely not used as prevalently most of this score was conducted what's called free time, which means that the orchestra was not listening to a click, Roja, the conductor, was not listening to a click, and instead, there's this technique called streamers and punches. Now, if you're looking in the score, you can actually see these notations marked, and what is happening at that moment is written in the score. So I'm looking right now at a thing, a streamer goes up to 22 seconds, close up Ben-Hur. You know, these things are all throughout the score, and the composer has chosen these moments that he wants to synchronize with the music. So how does he do that? Well, what the music department has done in conjunction with the army of orchestrators and copyists and everything and music editors, they've taken an actual film strip because they're going to project the movie onto a big screen at the back of the studio where they're recording the orchestra. And the film that they are projecting, they take the actual strip of film and they take a long ruler and they place it against the film strip so that it progresses diagonally from the left edge of the film strip to the right over the course of, I think it's 48 frames, which would be two seconds worth of film. And they draw a diagonal line with a grease pencil. When this film gets projected, that has the effect of making a vertical line appear to move across the screen from left to right over the course of two seconds. And then the frame that it lands on they actually take a hole puncher and punch a hole in the middle of it so a big white circle appears just for one frame's worth of time at the specific moment that the composer wanted to mark. So imagine you're conducting along, you're looking at the score, you see the symbol that says that a streamer is coming up, you're watching the screen, two seconds before the point that you want to hit, you see a line start to move across the screen from left to right, at the end of the line there's a punch, there's a dot, and there you are, that's your sync point. Here, let me just pick one particular streamer that I thought very nicely falls on a specific beat of action on the screen. And that's the moment just before the picture goes to intermission. We see Ben-Hur melancholy reflecting on everything that's gone wrong. He thinks that his mother and his sister are dead. And then there's this moment of resolve where you can see him decide, I'm going to really go through with it and exact my revenge on Misala. And there's this very lovely moment where his eyes rise up. He has his head in his hands, and he's miserable, and then he picks up his eyes, and they're nicely caught by the light, and you see this resolve on his face, and then he sort of confidently strides off, and that's the finale before intermission. So in the score, hold on, let me, let me now find it. So we were lucky enough to have a copy of the condensed score to refer to. So I'm looking at the score, and there's a mark for a streamer that lands at 38 seconds into the queue, and it says, looks up. And then six bars later, at 47 seconds now, there's another streamer rushes across courtyard. And this is all over the score. All of these micro decisions of here's a piece of music that falls on this spot in the film. It's just happening all the time. But you have to conduct to that point. You have been playing music at a certain tempo. Maybe it's not precisely the exact tempo. Maybe there's been some speeding up or slowing down in the playing and an orchestra is a big ponderous thing with a lot of inertia and it's very hard to make it speed up and slow down on a dime but that's what the conductor has to do it's a real skill and you kind of have to practice conducting your score to be able to anticipate these streamers and punches and make sure that they line up with the downbeat that you're conducting you know that's the undertaking 
He has to write this stuff. He has to sort of digest the whole movie, all of these moments, close-up Ben-Hur, a certain line. Now we cut to this. Now here's the end of a, an important point in the dialogue. Everything that happens in the movie, in this immense movie, is sort of digested through the composer like an earthworm. And, and he translates it into these moments that have many thousands of notes associated with them. And this gets through this army of people disseminated to an orchestra. And then it has to be performed in synchronicity to the picture with this kind of low-tech technique of watching the streamers go by and just having the skill to conduct at the right speed and still get the musicality that you want, but have the beats line up with the things as they're going by. Just the amount of work it is, it, it boggles my mind. I want it to boggle your minds too. Well, you sound impressed by exactly the sort of thing that this movie wanted to impress people with in every other respect, production value. And I think that that kind of appreciation can apply to so many less heralded scores, less distinguished movies still have a great deal of... Absolutely. ...of admirable work goes into them. But you also recognize that that's one form of appreciation which stands a little bit apart from the audience's dramatic enjoyment. Of course it does, but we're here to talk about the composing of the great film scores. This just seemed like a good moment when the score we're considering is so mammoth to take a moment to appreciate all of the nuts and bolts that go into it. When you were talking about sync, I thought we should definitely mention the moment with the most explicit synchronization gimmick in this movie, which is the rowing of the galley slaves sequence in which Charlton Heston as Judah Ben-Hur is one of many slaves chained to his seat rowing a Roman galley ship, and they row to the rhythm of a drum beaten by, I forget what they call it. Is it a hortator? Is it? Because if it's not, then I just said that for no reason. Uh, hortator, 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 hortator. Mm-hmm. I'll find out what's the correct pronunciation later, and I'll hopefully have it in that set there. Sort of like a old-fashioned coxswain. Yes, that's right. He synchronizes them, but of course there's a slave torture element. Yeah, yeah, to this that's right. As well. as, uh, an old-fashioned slave torture coxswain. So the scene involves the general Quintus Arius descending into the slave deck and practicing increasing speeds of rowing. Battle speed, Hortator. been led to understand that he has an interest in scoping out possible gladiatorial athletes from this crew and he's got his eye on Charlton Heston's oiled chest. He... Who doesn't? Yeah, well, you can watch the scene that way if you want. It pretty readily allows it. So he is testing their limits and it's a bit cruel. Attack speed. Attack speed! just basically watch men rowing faster and faster and having a harder and harder time of it and it becomes a musical sequence because Roja is in there playing both the speeds as they increase but also the pain as it increases which he does I think pretty brilliantly with essentially no melodic material just some textural ideas each time when they're forced to row at a faster tempo, there's a little bit more added into the texture of it. 
ramming speed. Memoir, Roger says that he got the studio to fly him to Rome to be present for some of the filming because of a few sequences where the composer's input was necessary for the visual, and this was one of them. He was present to specify the tempi so that they would work in some way he had in mind. And I thought this was actually a because of its simplicity in a way, because of how clearly it was designed in advance to hand over drama to the music, one of the most effective sequences in the movie. What did you think, John? Yeah, absolutely, it was. And of course, this is an exaggerated case, but you kind of hear here what the strengths and moves of the idiom that he uses throughout the movie are. There's this kind of stability to it. There's not musical development as much as there's just textural intensity. Yeah, as you say, there's the strain of it. There's obviously the rhythmic aspect of it. It meshes with the visual in a very satisfying way. In terms of musical illustration, the kind of composer's puzzle, how do I convey a rowing movement where you row forward mm -hmm. and then you pull back and that it's grueling and that it's endless and this very simple motif he's come up with for the bass it's just so perfectly done and that is a kind of talent that you know outside of the world of film composing I know that uh, Richard Strauss famously bragged once that he was the greatest illustrator and he could illustrate a musical spoon and a fork, I think it was, and that you could tell them apart. This was his boast. But it's a very particular kind of skill, and I feel like this is a beautiful demonstration of mastery of it. Another lovely thing I thought about the use of the music throughout this whole sequence, so we see this happening, the rowers are rowing to the beating of the hortator, but then there's a moment of a side when the general Arias goes up above deck and they're talking about the strategic blah 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 about what they're doing in the battle. You know that a fleet of Macedonian galleys has been raiding Roman commerce. The rowing is still going on, but the music sort of lets go of the focus on that rhythmic moment and takes you away from the action of the rowing. To me, that made a very close association of this rhythmic music is part of the scene of the rowing, and it is there, and it's not above deck. But then, yeah. at the end of this whole naval battle sequence, so now Charlton Heston, having saved the life of the victorious general, is now being afforded greater treatment and he's not being brought below deck to continue rowing as a slave but you see his face as he peers down into the portal in the deck of the boat and he sees where the other slaves on this boat are now rowing and now we hear that same rhythmic rowing music and because it had been established this rowing music is part of the rowing we don't hear it if we're above deck but now we see Charlton Heston above deck and the rowing music is sort of protruding up through the deck, and it's a very effective way of communicating his thinking. Minutes ago, I was a slave rowing below deck. Here are these other poor bastards. Who am I to now be above them? And I thought the way that he had laid this association and then having it sort of protrude above the deck was just wonderful musical storytelling. Yeah, it was. That was one of, I think, the strongest points for the music delivering the drama of this movie that we're really not talking very much about, the drama of 
that moment where the former slave is now going to be taken to Rome and celebrated, he sees, you know, but Rome is still built on the backs of these slaves here. The political sense that right. just because his life is taking a turn for the better doesn't mean that the overarching injustice has gone anywhere. And the music gives you that feeling without the script really doing much other than saying point of view shot up from below decks. That's a place where the music really contributed something substantial to the movie. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the fact that the chariot race, this enormous action set piece, which is probably the most memorable thing about this movie, has no music for it. Now, when we talked about how the West was won, we talked about how several major action set pieces in that movie had no music and how that felt a little bit unsatisfying given the sort of looseness of that movie as a whole. Here, it seemed to me it was the same choice being made, but because it had been made once for this one sequence that the whole movie leads up to, it worked for me. How did you feel about it? Yeah, I thought it did work here, similar perhaps to the Buffalo Stampede and how the exactly. West was won. Yeah. Just the sheer noise of the hooves of these animals running around was sort of noise enough to hear. And here's another moment where I absolutely was thinking, yeah, what would the music do here? You know, I don't think that there is vocabulary in this score that would be appropriate here. For example, probably the closest music that's in this score is the action music for this naval battle. Mm -hmm. What would happen if you just layered it on top of the audio of the chariot race? Yes, it would sound like this. Uh, you know, I've done it because you asked me to do it. Thanks, Andy. The point I wanted to make by making you do that is that I don't think it's right. I don't think having this kind of closely scored, chaotic action music against the sound of these thundering hooves going around in a circle, I don't think it's adding to it. The scene functions as the climax of the Ben-Hur versus Masala story and of the movie as a whole. And if you were scoring it, you'd have to pick whether... You were scoring that this is the epic moment when these two former friends have finally come to this, or whether you were scoring that this is very exciting, horses running is exciting, and it transcends the framework of the movie in a thrilling way by having no music declaring what the dramatic value is. There's just the adrenaline of each moment presenting itself. I think that that move was disappointing in How the West was won, essentially because it was used more than once, and it wasn't used just mm -hmm. at places that needed to transcend that Yeah, way. you're right. It was singular in this case. I do agree that it was effective to not have this scored. This silence, or the musical silence, did have a sort of transcendent quality to it. And indeed, the dramatic scoring has sort of died down, and the scenes leading up to it and right after it are just pomp. They're just fanfares and things. Yeah, they're just like source music fanfares. For example, Misala is late arriving in the lineup of chariots before the race. Number five! Where is number five? And then he makes a kind of dramatic entrance. Ah! 
there's no music for that. There very well might have been, but but again, we're just in this chariot world now where we're only hearing the source fanfares and nothing else. Okay, Andy, I've got just a couple questions about lyrics that I want to ask you. I'm yeah. looking through the score here, and uh, <laughs> I see that somebody whose name is Paul Francis Webster has written lyrics to the love theme, and the title of the song that results is Written in the Stars. Behold the sign written in the stars. Behold this dream of mine written in the stars. <laughs> so is this just like a de rigueur practice of taking these themes and trying to make marketable tunes for people to buy sheet music of? I'm not sure. I mean, it might have been, yes, it might just be like the music department said, do we have any songs in this one? Well, maybe. We've got a love theme. All right, make a song of it just in case. Yeah, does it ever get recorded? Oh, I don't think so. Given this thankless assignment of writing lyrics to this tune, I thought that guy did pretty good. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Behold our love written in the stars. It kind of fits the spirit of the movie sure. and of the theme, and it fits an awkward, not very lyrics-oriented melody. I thought he did a solid professional job, and I understand why they hired him to do it. All right, well, you know, maybe we should try to go back and write lyrics of our own to some of the other themes we've covered. If we can get MGM to pay us for it, yeah. I'll gladly do that. Listeners, maybe you should try that and send them in. We'll, uh, we'll read them on the air. Uh, so I was saying that those lyrics were clearly not part of Roja's compositional process. Looking through the score here, I'm seeing some lyrics that I wonder if they were part of his compositional process. And that is the music for the Sermon on the Mount. When I was watching the film, I was taken with the technique that was used, which was, again, we never see Jesus' face. We, you know, we, we don't hear him talking but we hear this sort of uh, evolution of Roja's Jesus material. And I felt like, oh, the music is standing in for the sermon. And you understood that at the time, before you looked at the score? Exactly. As I was watching, I felt like this is an effect where the music is standing in for the sermon. And that's pretty neat. I thought that was uh, a powerful thing to do with the music. Then afterwards, as I looked at the score... Sure enough, it turns out that the Beatitudes, the words are written underneath the notes, which correspond to them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, and so on. words are you know, specifically intended to fit the syllables of the sermon. So I, I don't know if he thought that that would be sung or if that was a compositional device that he, you know, matched his notes to those syllables. I think his idea was that music is going to represent the voice of Jesus because it would be poor taste to actually have someone pretend to be Jesus, at least in the invented concept of poor taste that this movie sticks to. Um, you know, a few, a few years later, they made King of Kings with Roja music where it's all about Jesus. Of course he talks. I think his idea was a listener who's attuned enough to what words would be spoken at this point might be able to actually recognize that he has maintained the rhythms of the words and that this music represents it. And for everyone else, it's just sort of speech-like music, which you apparently picked up on. I must admit that I, I didn't I didn't notice the effect. Well, it didn't occur to me that it was specifically corresponding to specific syllables. 
but it was a satisfying click into place to realize that it did by looking at the score. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's a neat technique that he used to have that be something that informed what he was doing. I think that characterizes something worthy of praise about this score overall, that Roja has clearly put great care into this particular score. And a thing like that is, to me, evidence of it because it doesn't seem likely that most or even maybe not any audience members would pick up on the full extent of the care he had put into that, but he did it anyway. I mean, that shows artistic integrity. And I think that this score, within the mode of big epic movie music that sounds like big epic movie music, it's a very cared-for product. And I think that becomes more and more apparent. The more this kind of attention you give it, it shows that it can reward that. I'm not sure the audience reaps any particular reward from a lot of the detail work that Roja put into it, but I think overall you reap a sense of... Of being well cared for. Of being well cared for, exactly. Yeah, as an audience that you're being taken care of, that the narrative presentation that you're investing yourself in is thoughtfully packaged. I think you used the word sincere earlier, and that Mm -hmm. might apply to what I'm saying here too. Yeah. Roja's effort does not feel cynical. Mm -hmm. No, not at all. There is a tendency, I think on my part and on many people's parts i would imagine to be cynical about this kind of a hollywood extravaganza having been itself somewhat cynically put together and the music here for all that it is exactly right down the center right in the pocket of hollywood extravaganza doesn't feel at all cynical it feels like roja's attempt to make it powerful was sincere and his memoir bears that out he seems to have taken the opportunity Seriously, I've been proud of what he did, and I do think that comes across. You know, I sort of watched through this movie twice, once just by itself and once following along with the score, and listened to it a bunch of times. And as you say, the more I exposed myself to it, the more impressed I was with this score. It's an earnest, perfectionist, completionist's effort at trying to do a really good job at every turn that he could. Yeah, I really do think it comes across ultimately. As for why this is on the list, I think... Miklos Roja being on the list was absolute necessity. He's one of the central figures in the Hollywood sound of the golden Mm -hmm. age of film scores. He wrote over 100 film scores, I believe, in many different genres, but he was strongly associated with this genre. As I said earlier, I think that there are Hollywood scoring conventions that were his invention, so it's just absolutely necessary for him to be on the list. Mm -hmm. They might have found other ways to get him on the list, but it makes sense to me that this would be the one they picked. It's the biggest, it's the boldest, it's probably the most best known, it's his favorite, like you said. You know, he was also proud of uh, El Cid, I know, and of Quo that we mentioned earlier, but yeah, Ben-Hur, it's Ben-Hur. And like we've said, this AFI list was concocted to be presented in concert form, so... For a concert where you're going to show some of the movie on screen and play the music, this seems like a great choice for representing Miklos Roja. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so now that we're making our own list about it, where shall we rank it next to the films that we've already covered? Maybe I'll go first this time. Okay. For me, it does not surpass On the Waterfront. I felt like I had a special experience of watching On the Waterfront and connecting the music with what I was watching and the drama. And... This didn't surpass that for me. It wasn't as special an experience. But I think I'm going to slot it in below On the Waterfront and above On Golden Pond, between the two On movies. Yeah, break that up. Yeah, you got to break up the lefties in the lineup. Uh, Okay, Andy, what do you think? This versus On the Waterfront, it's such an apples and oranges kind of comparison. And obviously... Well, I like apples better. 
Yeah, I felt the same way you did that On the Waterfront is more special, gives a more significant musical experience that I was more interested in exploring. Mm -hmm. Because Ben-Hur is so much more a part of the big Hollywood sound that I think of as the big Hollywood sound. But, you know, the big Hollywood sound is a magical cultural phenomenon. It's something that I relish when it's given to me. And I don't want to be snobby and say, well... He's just doing every trick in the book. That's a pretty cool book, that book. And I sure. don't, don't want to knock it just because it was used so many times. Over I'm not years. knocking it. Oh, I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to justify what I'm about to say, which is that I... I'm excited to hear it. I am going to accept Ben-Hur being above on the waterfront. Even really? Though, even though that doesn't represent my level of enthusiasm for the music. You know, the On the Waterfront score is pretty distinctive. There's not a lot of other scores that sound just like that, have just that balance of things. And On the Waterfront yeah. is a pretty distinctive movie. And Ben-Hur is... There are other things that sound like it, and it's an excellent example of a lot of things that sound like it. Yeah, it is essentially the most biggest version of a thing that's not distinctive at all. It's like... The... Right, but that's part of the reason why I held On the Waterfront above it, because it is more distinctive. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that if I made distinction be the only way that I was making this list, then ultimately, the stuff for which Hollywood is in some ways most known would just fall to the bottom of the list because, like, yeah, that's what Hollywood does. So I, in appreciating that what Hollywood hmm. does is powerful and is, uh, has been important to me in my life. Like I said, when I heard those first three chords, I was like, here we go. I know where I am. You nailed it, man. And, and I'm smirking. Like, there's some degree of camp appreciation in my appreciation for it, but I cannot deny that the thing I'm appreciating is. Uh, a major player in the cultural world. Know what I'm saying? Well, I don't disagree with any of that, but I don't feel like I am required to disagree with any of that by ranking on the waterfront above this. In any case, this is a surprising turn. I didn't know what I was going to say until now, and since you said one side of my mind, I said the other side. All right. We're keeping things interesting. I'm going to reserve the right to allow you to change your mind as we move along, because I think that this is... I wonder if you're going to want to... I do set myself up for trouble here. Yeah, exactly. There's That's what I was tons thinking. of movies that I could use for the same thing and be like, well, some of them have to be worse than On the Waterfront. Right. You're setting yourself up. Well, let's see. Let's see what happens. Let's see where yeah, things... The honest answer is after I watched the movie, I was like, well, On the Waterfront was better than that. And then as okay, I started... Okay, well, then what's the... What, and what, then what? as I started thinking about the score, I thought, we spent a lot of time on On the Waterfront being like... Well, Lenny does this thing that's kind of breaking the rules, but it was kind of interesting. And here he broke the rules. It didn't totally work, but we're still on his side. And here he played by the rules. He was kind of the writer of the rules. And it just works, 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 works. And okay. to me, that's an achievement. You're right. It is. Uh, and my hat is off to it. Next episode, we're going to be talking about, and this is a real sublime to the ridiculous kind of a transition. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty literally, right? Well, I mean, this is kind of ridiculous too, but it's a sublime ridiculousness. But it's ridiculous about the sublime. Yes. And now for ridiculous ridiculousness. And well, maybe some people would say it's sublime about the ridiculous. And that is Henry Mancini's score for the Pink Panther. That is going to be fun, I think. And short. Right. I think the amount of music in that is like a, this score would just some dust on its shoulder. It would brush away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have we said everything we need to talk about, John? Oh, oh we're supposed to uh, riff about whether we liked settling the score. Do you like settling the score any better this time, Andy? Uh, I'm just, you know, 
I think it's fine. I think that as long as we have a cool icon that makes it clear that this is score relating to a film score and not uh, not a podcast where people like settle scores with each other and you know like get revenge. You know, like Ben Hur could have been called settling the score. Wow. Right. Well, you just blew my mind. <laughs> it wouldn't have been a good name for it, but frankly, Ben Hur is not a very good name for it either. Well, because his name is Judah Ben Hur, and Ben means like of son of, right, or of the house of. Yeah, something. right. So it's a strange name for this. Well, this has been settling the score, and we have settled the score of what should have been called settling the score. Yeah, I to don't the know. Next time. Yeah. Um, what if we were to have some kind of dignified out? What would it be? We've tried a few things. Uh, I think a quick out. I was listening to some other podcast the other day, and they were like, okay, thanks for listening, and then it was over. I think that's how a grown-up professional podcast would end. Maybe that's just not who we are. <laughs> well, not yet. Uh, <laughs> all right, so let's try some, uh, some just quick outs. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. But uh, I always hated it when people say, we'll see you. First of all, as a listening medium... Why would the hosts, even if we could see each other, why would the hosts be seeing that? Ugh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, do you have any good jokes about Ben-Hur? No. <laughs> <laughs>